throughout history, there's been, there's been people who made predictions about the future, right? That's been going on probably as, as long as, as time. Um, uh, but there's been people in the past that haven't just made predictions, but, but have made kind of arrogant predictions that really ended up uh, costing them in one way or another. They paid a price when those predictions didn't come true. So, for example, uh, some examples from recent history. There was an economist named Irving Fisher who made this confident prediction at one time. He said, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. In other words, the stock market's never going to go down, is what he was saying. Uh, Do you know when he made that statement? I mean, which is kind of ironic enough that he made it, but three days before the stock market crash of 1929. Well-timed. <laughs> uh, 1977, a guy named Ken Olson said, there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, an executive at Decca Records in 1962 said that the Beatles have no future in show business. None whatsoever. Um, and, and one last one, uh, Philip Franklin of White Star Line famously and, and ominously said, there is no danger that Titanic will sink. No danger at all. Now, now we, we know how all of those turned out, don't we? Uh, those people all made pretty arrogant assumptions and predictions that went very, very wrong. And, and so it just makes me ask the question, what leads to that type of incorrect assumption? And I think part of the problem maybe is an inability to picture a reality other than the current one. Uh, in all those situations, the person couldn't see how things would ever change from what they presently were right at that moment. So I think that's part of it. And, and I think maybe another part of the problem is uh, arrogance that comes from the presumed position of power and security. When you think about Titanic especially, um, Philip Franklin felt like the boat that they had built was invincible. He said that statement from a position of what he thought was power and security. But, you know, when we think about all of those predictions of the past, it's, it, it's not just a large metal boat made from great amounts of, of metal and advanced engineering that can make a person arrogant. It's not just that. And, and we're going to look at two other things this morning, really two more common things, which can lead to arrogance in our lives. And, and typically then that arrogance will lead us into sinful actions in our lives. So we're going to pick things up in the book of James where we've left off. And the first thing that James is going to identify for us as something that can lead to arrogance is physical health. So if you'd look with me at James chapter 4, uh, we'll be starting in verse 13 this morning. James chapter 4, verse 13. And James writes this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, Spend a year there, trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So right off the bat, James states the assumption of the healthy. The assumption is that tomorrow will come. The assumption is that, that I do have a tomorrow to live. And, and, and really, you, you can uh, see in, in the sermon notes that I put together for today, the wider assumption is that I have endless days, like I'm going to keep having a tomorrow to live. Now, we all intellectually know that we do not have endless days in this life. We know that, right? I, I, I don't feel like I need to convince anyone of that this morning. Uh, through the death of other people that we've experienced, we know that our days are numbered. But yet it doesn't mean that we're not tempted to function and to live life as if our days are endless. And, uh, you know, and I, I think the more we the more we remove ourselves from death, or, or at least from having to think about death, the greater that temptation of arrogance becomes, the greater that temptation to assume that my days are endless becomes. I, I was listening to a podcast uh, a while ago hosted by Russell Moore, and he was talking about the unintended consequences of moving cemeteries away from churches. Have you ever noticed this lately? Uh, it used to be in the old days that nearly everywhere you found a church, there'd be a cemetery right there. And, you know, uh, now for numerous reasons, it's just not the case nowadays. You might still find a cemetery by a church, but, but almost always that's because the church is an older church building. And so what Russell Moore was saying is that, is that by no longer seeing the cemetery regularly when we go to church, it, it just becomes easier to not think about death. It becomes easy to disconnect death from our lives as followers of Jesus. And so, you know, if you think about it, that would be much less of a temptation if every Sunday your parking spot faces Brother Johnson's or Sister Anderson's gravestone, right? You'd kind of be forced to think about it more often. So, so just in, you know, in, in the context in which we live, the temptation for us, and especially for those who are generally healthy, is to push death out of mind and live as if tomorrow will, will always come. And so because of this temptation and because the believers then were, were living in that arrogance, James gave a dose of reality to them. He reminded his readers that they didn't know what tomorrow would bring. Nowhere had they been promised tomorrow in this life. And, and it's not just James that, uh, who points this out. Um, David, in Psalm 39, says that, that our lifetime is as nothing before God. He says that we go about as a shadow. Solomon says in Proverbs 27, we don't know what a day may bring. Uh, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is a continual reminder that our days are numbered, and, and because of that, we look for meaning in those days. James says we're, we're, we're like a, a mist, 
It appears for a little time and then vanishes. That, that word can be translated uh, a puff of smoke, right? It's there and then, and then poof, it's gone. And so I thought maybe with the pastor play with a little fire this morning and, uh, you know, just kind of drive the point home. I'll light a candle and blow it out and we'll just see how long the smoke lingers before it vanishes and is gone. Oh, it's hanging on. About three seconds, four seconds. It's not long, right? I mean, it's there, and then, and then poof, it's gone. That's what James is saying. It's like a mist, this puff of smoke. It's there. Next thing you know, it's gone. Now, this isn't groundbreaking, right? I'm not, I'm not uh, sharing a deep theological truth here that is difficult to grasp. And yet, how often do we wake up, again, especially when we have good health, and not even give a second thought to the fact that today may be the last. I, I mean, we can, we can arrogantly assume that we've got a large number of days left. And because of that, we can then be tempted to keep this day for ourselves rather than give it to God, right? We can maybe consciously or, or subconsciously think, well, I'll give tomorrow to God. Today, I want to do this. I want to do that. Today's for me. Be able to give God another day. Now, now the goal in, in considering the brevity of our lives this morning, it's not to paralyze us. It's not to make us fearful of death, um, not to make us depressed about the length of life. The goal is to respond according to James's statements in verses 15 through 17. Because James presents the reality. And then in verse 15 says, well, in light of that reality, here's what you ought to do. All right, we ought to humble ourselves before God, seeking his will. We ought to be obedient before God, carrying out his will. So the goal is an attitude that, that says, God, show me your will for today, and then help me to live out that will today. You know, however many days I have left on this earth, I don't know, but, but you do, God. And so, because you have numbered my days, show me how to live this one. I mean, that's the goal in, in, in the reality that James is sharing with the readers here. Now, when we, when we talk about this, right, if, if the Lord wills, the, the, the concept of God's will can be a tricky one. Um, and, and the Bible actually speaks of God's will in a few different ways, which is why it's kind of tricky. Um, so sometimes the Bible refers to the inviolable plans of God. There's a fun word, inviolable. In other words, unable to be violated. Inviolable. So in God's inviolable will is something that will come to pass regardless of any human decision. It is, it is unable to be violated. So in a, in a verse uh, like Isaiah 53.10, that's the meaning of will there when it says, referring to Jesus, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That was God's inviolable will. Jesus was going to die on the cross. Nothing was going to stop that from, from taking place. 
God's inviolable will. So sometimes, like there, when it says it was the will of the Lord, that's the kind of will being talked about. Other times, God's will refers to the violable will of God, able to be violated. So that would be uh, the meaning of will in a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where, where Paul writes and he says, uh, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, now because God has given us free will as human beings, the God's violable will in that area does not always come to pass for every human being, right? We don't always give thanks in all circumstances, which is God's will for us. You see in the difference there, right? There's God's inviolable will and his violable will. And then there's a third one, which is the one I think James is referring to here. It's, it's the will of God that refers to God's guidance for us regarding decisions that we must make outside of the specific commands given to us in Scripture, right? There are things written in Scripture that we know that that is God's inviolable will to crush Jesus. It is God's, it's his stated violable will that we would give thanks in all circumstances. Those are clearly stated in Scripture. But then there's other times where God's will refers to something outside of that. So when David uh, was, that's uh, what David meant in 1 Chronicles 13, when he encouraged the people to discern if it seemed like their desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem was a desire from God, to discern if that was God's will for them, right? It wasn't written in Scripture to say that, yes, we need to be doing this, but God, is that your will for us in this situation here and now? Are you leading us in that direction? So I think that is the will that James is referring to here when he encourages us to seek God's will for our daily lives, he doesn't, he doesn't have in mind those universal commands in Scripture that always apply. I mean, yes, those always apply like they always do. But James has in mind the other daily decisions that, that we have to make. Decisions that aren't necessarily between good and evil or right and wrong. Just decisions that we face and we're trying to seek God's leading for us. So, so should I meet this person or that person for lunch today? You know, God, what do you have for me there? Um, should I sign my child up for that sport or that club? God, what's your leading here? Should we travel to see the grandkids this weekend or stay home? I mean, things like that, right? Where we seek to, to, to discern, God, what do you have for me? What do you have for us? Now, let me just say quickly, a person can go to the extreme of seeking God's will in every single minute detail of life, right? To the point that it is exhausting and crushing, right? Should, should I take a shower this morning? Should I wear makeup today? Should, how should I style my hair? What shirt should I wear? What earrings should I wear? Pants should I? I mean, all of the, all of the decisions. I mean, that was just like the first 15 minutes of our day right there. I, I mean, God has given us a free will. And with a large number of decisions each day, I think God's will is less about the choice we make, you know, what, what do I eat for breakfast, and more about how do we carry out that decision? And we ought to, ought to make our choice and then do it to the glory of God. I, I think a lot of times that, that's, 
That's what God has for us, his will for us each day, that we utilize the free will that we've been given, that we humbly submit it to him and, and, and make that decision to his glory. But during most days, there will be situations where, where there's kind of those bigger decisions or, or what we had planned doesn't go as we had planned. What we had planned just it doesn't work out that way. And in those moments that we feel the pull, right? Am I going to fight for my plans for the day? Or am I going to humble myself before God, asking him to reveal how he's working in my day? Maybe his will is something different than what I had assumed it might be in a specific area. Now, my gut reaction is to fight for my plans for the day. I mean, they're my plans, right? That means they're good. <laughs> they wouldn't, wouldn't be my plans if they weren't good, right? That's my gut reaction, but, but I, you know, I need to do a better job of holding my daily schedule humbly, allowing God to guide and direct as he sees best. And then once he sets a new course, to be obedient to it. I think that's what James is, is saying uh, in verse 17 there, that, that to not do that is to sin, when God reveals something and says, no, th th this is what I have planned for you today, if I say, well, sorry, I'm already doing this, that's, that's uh, we call it a, a sin of omission, omitting to do the thing that God has revealed to us. So when James says, you know, uh, uh, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it, it is a sin. I think, that, I think that's what he's driving at there. When God says, no, we're going to going to do this today, and, and I say, nope, I'm doing this. I don't care. This is the way I'm going. James says it's sinful. It's sinful to have that kind of attitude. And again, uh, living, living arrogantly, living according to our own desires can be a temptation for anyone, but especially for those who are healthy, those who are quicker to presume upon tomorrow. God, you want me to do this? Well, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. I already had this planned for today. It can be easier to fall into that. Uh, for those who are healthy, or, or, or the, for those who have the strength and the health to do what they want to do, right? If I can't do what I want to do physically, it's, it's not quite as tempting to hold strongly to that, right? But if I do have that physical ability, then, then there is that stronger temptation to hold on to my own way. So what James is saying here in, in verses 13 through 17 is none of us knows what tomorrow will bring, Nobody knows. We can guess. We'll be wrong lots of times, like those examples I gave. But none of us knows, and so we ought to be humble and obedient to God's leading each and every day. Whatever the day brings, that we have that continual attitude before him. So for the healthy, there's that danger of arrogance. And then there's another thing that James identifies as something which can lead to arrogance— and that is wealth. So look with me at the beginning of chapter 5. So that's where James talks and, and uh, gives a warning to the rich as we see the heading there. So James 5.1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So, so James doesn't overtly point out the exact assumption of the wealthy in verse 1. But based on his warning for them, I, I think it's quite clear. Right? Because he warns the wealthy to weep and howl regarding the miseries that are coming, I believe that the wealthy assumed that they wouldn't face miseries because of their wealth. Right? I've, I've got this, this, I've got these financial resources I can bypass some of the miseries of life. James says, no, no, weep and howl, right? The, the, the rich assumed that their life would be smooth and easy because of their wealth, which sounds about right, doesn't it? I, I mean, don't we all have those thoughts in one way or another? If we just had a little bit more money, then the problems that I'm facing right now could be solved or at least improved, Right? Man, if I was the one to win the almost $2 billion lottery coming up, man, the difficulties and miseries of my life would go away. Isn't it tempting to, I mean, even we know we don't believe that, to kind of think along those lines. The temptation is to look at those with more wealth than we have and just assume that their life is easier and better than ours, that they get to bypass some miseries. Well, in response to the, that false assumption that riches lead to an easy life, James highlights two realities this time. So the first thing that he highlights, verses 2, 2 and 3, is that earthly riches have no lasting value. He tells the rich that their wealth is rotted, their garments are full of holes, their, their precious metals have corroded, um, now, now, James is using a metaphor here to describe reality because their, their wealth wasn't physically rotten and, and their garments didn't have physical holes in them and, and gold and silver can't corrode physically. So he's using a metaphor, but what he's doing is pointing out the lack of value of their wealth in light of eternal reality. Saying when you take your perspective off of this limited spot and look at eternity, this is what your wealth is like. It's precisely because a person's days are not endless and that eternity is coming that their wealth had such little value. He, he, said, he said they have functionally stored up wealth or stored up treasure in the last days. You've stored up treasure in the last days. And it, it, that, that, that really reminded me of a game that, that we play at our house, um, fittingly called Loot. I don't know if you've played this game before, but it's a game where there are, are two primary kinds of cards. I brought them just to show you. There's merchant ships that are worth a certain amount of gold, and there's pirate ships that you use to attack and capture the merchant ships. And so the way the game goes is you, you, have, you have two options when it's your turn. You can either draw a card from the pile, put it in your hand, or you can play a card and try to capture a merchant ship. Well, I've, I've noticed over the years that, that nearly every person who plays this game, and myself included, has to learn a specific lesson the hard way. So it can be tempting to use a lot of your turns to just keep drawing more and more and more cards, to try and build up as big of a pirate fleet as you can 
to then go attack and, and capture merchant ships later in the game. But the game ends when all the cards are drawn and then somebody plays the last card in their hand. So what inevitably happens to almost every person at one point or another is they spend all their turns drawing cards, building up these pirate ships, only to be holding those cards at the end of the game in their hand, unplayed, because it suddenly ended. <laughs> and, and what happens then is, is they've been storing up this pirate ship wealth, but then time runs out and the value of these cards plummets to zero. You get nothing for these at the end of the game. You're, just, you're left with a handful of worthless pirate ships because the game suddenly ended. The time ran out when you weren't ready for it. And, and you know, a, a biblical example of that would be the, the parable of the uh, rich fool in Luke 12 that Jesus told, right? He's got an abundance of crops, and so he builds bigger barns to hold and hoard his wealth. He, he thought he was set to enjoy in luxury his, his uh, many days yet to come. But then that very night, his life comes to an end, and uh, it renders his barns full of grain worthless to himself. And, and, and so the reality is that we can go through life storing up treasure that we assume is very valuable, but, but because we don't know the number of our days, like we talked about uh, earlier, and because our days will come to an end, that value is much less than we realize. It's like wealth that is rotted, garments with holes in them, gold that's corroding. That, that's really the value of our wealth in light of eternity. So James points out that reality, and then, and then the other reality that he points out is, is that just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're a good person. <laughs> that wealth can be compiled through the oppression of others. So, you know, employees were not fairly paid the wages that they had earned by their wealthy employer. They were being held back. Those with wealth denied others the basic necessities of life so that they themselves could live in luxury and, and uh, self-indulgence, like James says. They arrogantly assumed that their wealth was their own to be lavishly used on themselves because they were just better or more worthy or whatever than, than others. But, but, but this ignores completely ignores God's commands in Deuteronomy 24, for example, to not oppress the hired worker, pay them daily for the wages that they deserve. When that happens, the employer cares for the worker, meets his or her needs. The, when, when that happens, the employer displays the character and love of God in that kind of a way. So, uh, you know, a, a modern-day example of this, I just saw an article the other day, of, of kind of seeking to avoid the, that arrogance of wealth is the Green family, the, the founding family of Hobby Lobby. Um, so David Green seems to have little desire to hoard his wealth for himself or for his family. And, and in fact, he, he, he's been quoted as, as um, basically saying that he would be concerned about uh, the, uh, his descendants by giving them vast amounts of wealth, how he might ruin their lives in doing that. And, and so he is determined to give away his ownership of his company. Um, and if you look at Hobby Lobby, you can also see they, they pay a minimum wage of $18.50 an hour, which is really good. You might be thinking, man, I'm going to go buy Hobby Lobby. Um, they're closed on Sundays. They close at 8 o'clock every other day, and, and they've said that's so that uh, they can not overwork their employees. And 
now I'm sure the Green family doesn't do everything flawlessly. I, I, I'm, I'm sure of that. But, but outwardly, it seems like the Green family's wealth has not led to arrogance. Right? And, and I think maybe we do well to consider their example and, and, and how they've handled it. Now, now, granted, many of us don't have a business, right? We, we don't have employees that, that we're writing paychecks for on a regular basis. Uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that this warning doesn't apply to us. We, we, we can still seek to hoard wealth through oppressive means. Maybe we refuse to be generous to those in need. Maybe we have deceitful plans at work to secure a promotion. Maybe we sacrifice relationships with family or friends in order to build wealth. I mean, there's lots of ways that this can, can show itself. But again, the assumption can be that, that riches lead to a better life. And, and the reality is that our days will come to an end and our wealth will not be taken with us beyond this life. So, so as James presents that reality, the, then the question is, well, how should we respond to that? Um, and he doesn't say it explicitly here in his letter, but, but the believers in the church surely would have had no trouble recalling Jesus' words on this matter. So let me read some of Jesus' words. First from Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Right? Sounds like what James was talking about there. It says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so the response is, is storing treasure in heaven. But how do we do that? I mean, that, that's, that's a nice phrase that we've heard lots of times, but how do we store treasure in heaven? And this would be Jesus' words from Luke chapter 12. He says this, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. So, uh, you know, we, we fight against the temptation of arrogance in the area of wealth by, by being generous, by being focused on what is to come, um, not focused on just the here and now, our, our net worth, how many zeros there are in the number here and now. Jesus says expand that perspective to have that eternal view, store up treasure in heaven According to that, what is coming. Now, really, there may not be two more anxiety-inducing topics for a pastor to preach on than what we do with our time and what we do with our money. So thank you, James. Appreciate that. Time and money are just, they're things that we hold dear, right? I mean, I mean they, they just are. And I'm not saying, yeah, me too. I mean, time and money are things that we hold dear. James rightly points out that they're things which tempt us toward arrogance and, and then end up leading toward sinful living. Those are things that don't jive with a living faith in Jesus, like James has been talking about in his whole letter. The good thing in all of this 
is that as followers of Jesus, in this context today, there are ways to identify any arrogance we might have in these two areas, time and wealth. A good thing to do is grab our calendar, grab our bank statement, where all these things are recorded, and, and, and just examine those with God. You know, I'm, I'm confident that if, if we humbly come before God with those two things, seeking his will in those areas, he will guide us. He, he will direct us in that. And so that, that's the challenge for today. It's the challenge I'm giving us. Uh, you know, we're, we're into November now. We're quickly coming to the end of one year and the beginning of another year. Um, and it's often around New Year that New Year's resolutions are set, which are, are typically goals for our time. And a budget, yearly budget can be set, which is goals for our money. So we're, we're just kind of coming into this time where it's a natural thing to think about anyway. So, so the challenge for all of us, and whether you're 8 or 98, right, the challenge for all of us is to spend time between now and New Year's Day examining how we spend time and how we spend money. Um, and if you're married, do this with your spouse. Um, if, you're, if you're a kid, do this with your parent. Um, and, and, and because I know the holiday season gets real busy real fast, I mean, it's coming. Um, I, I would say before the end of today, pull out the calendar, which you're going to need anyway, and schedule it. Mark it down, say, this is when I'm going to come before God, bring my calendar, my bank statement, and and just examine it with them. And, and again, if, if applicable, your spouse, your parent with you as well. Schedule it. Make an appointment to do that today. Make the appointment today for some time between now and New Year's. Instead of, of going into 2023 with, with the same old assumptions about time and money, let's live out our faith through our humble utilization of those things, time and money. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only in these areas, which James has challenged us. It, it applies to all areas of our lives. Let, let's, let's walk toward the finish line with purpose so that after this life, we can look back with God because it's going to happen. We're going to stand before God and we're going to look back over our lives. But let's live now in such a way that when we do that, we can smile together upon the ways that we've utilized those resources that he's given to us, the resource of time and the resource of money. So that's the challenge between now and New Year. And, and get that on the calendar today and then man, be humble before God. And, and, and who knows what he'll do through it. And uh, we know there'll be discomfort, right? <laughs> We know there will be some discomfort with it when we let go of those things where we're, where we're holding tighter than we should. But let's do that and live out this faith that uh, God has blessed us with. Would you stand with me? Let's come before God in prayer and um, that we might seek his leading in these two specific areas. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for, for how you bless us, the things that you give to us. We know you give us many different things, but two of those are time and money. And you give all of us different amounts of those things, but yet we're all called to humbly 
lay those at your feet. And so, God, I pray that you would, you would guide us in that, that you would, uh, again, help us to grab a hold of those realities that, uh, uh, that James has presented to us. Help us to think rightly about our time and about our money. God, and then as we do that, would you, would you help us to have that humble attitude? Would you uh, bring us to that place where we, where we give it to you and ask that your will be revealed to us, that we might utilize those in a way that's so honoring and glorifying to you? God, I, I, I thank you in advance for the, the blessing that that way of living is. God, give us a taste of it more and more each day that we might desire that way of living more and more. God, and we do thank you that when our time here does come to an end and when our physical wealth here then stays behind, that we get eternity with you. We are in your presence forever. God, help us to not forget that. May that, be, may that be our focus. I thank you that you've done what, what is necessary to give us that possibility and give us that reality. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love that led you to do that. And now as we continue praising you through singing once again, may that drive the words that come out of our mouths. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.